Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by Northern Trust Asset Management. As such, the sponsor may suggest topics for a discussion, but the final control of the content remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Michael Hunstead, who is Head of Quantitative Research for Northern Trust Asset Management. Michael? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit how you got started in the investment industry? I understand that uh, apart from investment, uh, you also have a bit of an academic background. How did you get started? Sure. So I got started in the industry after pursuing my MBA. I took a job with a consulting firm doing short-term liquidity management. Uh, Pursued a PhD in mathematics after that. Uh, after graduation, went to, a, as everyone does, a long, short equity hedge fund. Uh, tried that out for a while. Uh, moved to the investment arm of a very large insurance company, uh, to an algo trading, algorithmic trading firm after that, and then finally to Northern Trust Asset Management. In the process, uh, also was an academic uh, teaching mathematics at the graduate level. Yeah, so quite a diverse background with hedge funds and academia. Uh, how you look at the hedge fund industry today? Has it changed much? Uh, it certainly changed quite a bit. Um, you know, I think there's probably a little bit uh, of concern around the returns, the recent performance of hedge funds, uh, especially uh, the long, short, systematic types of hedge funds. Uh, but, you know, as everything else, these things are cyclical. So I, I have no doubt uh, there's a there's a bright future for hedge funds at some point. Yeah. Now, hedge funds are all about risk. And today we're talking also about uh, the risk report of Northern Trust. So this is a report that looked at uh, a period of four years and looked at over 200 portfolios and looked at more than a thousand equity strategies and basically analyzed what kind of drivers uh, of risk and unintended uh, risk are in portfolios. Can you tell me a little bit about the background of this report? Is this the first one? This is the first formal report, yes, although we have been doing these kinds of analyses for our clients and prospects for uh, for at least eight years now. We've done hundreds of them. We've chosen to publish the most recent ones, uh, but they're the same basic findings. Everything that we've sort of discovered seven, eight years ago, we now have basically confirmed within this research report. Yeah. And I think there were six common drivers of unintended outcomes in this report. And one of them was about the unrewarded risks in portfolios. And I was quite stunned to find that this is on average as high as 40 to 50%. Um, why is it so high? Well, 
the just to set the stage a little bit, you know, I, I think what this report does is challenge the notion that uh, higher risk equals higher return. That's the general rule of thumb that you know people operate under. Um, what this report does is show that. You know, not every risk is compensated, and uh, there are certain risks that come with a higher return. There's many risks that come with little or no return attached to them. Uh, so to your question, why is the uncompensated portion so high? Uh, typically, in the course of exposing the portfolio to some alpha driver, whether that is security selection, stock picking, a systematic factor exposure, you name it, uh, you tend to take a lot of unintentional bets or risk in these uncompensated sources. And the challenge is, as was pointed out in the, in the report, they can dominate the overall risk profile of the portfolio. I'll just give you one example. Um, obviously, there's a lot of equity volatility right now, a lot of asset owners in the industry moving toward low volatility uh, strategies. So they want that low volatility factor exposure, but in the course of tilting toward that low volatility factor exposure, uh, they may well be taking very large bets on certain sectors like utilities and real estate, consumer staples. Uh, they may be taking bets in that these securities are a little larger in size. There's a size bias. Uh, they tend to be a bit more expensive than the benchmark. There is a negative value bias. Uh, there could be the idiosyncratic risk in there as well. So you think you're getting low volatility exposure, but what you're really getting is, yes, some low volatility exposure, but a lot of your risk is sectors, idiosyncratic countries, regions, if it's an international portfolio. These are the kinds of things that uh, we typically classify as uncompensated. And it's these risks that are really dominating the performance of the portfolio. That's what's driving a lot of these unexpected outcomes. Uh, so it's not necessarily a surprise per se. Uh, I think the magnitude is surprising, but the fact that these uncompensated risks exist uh, is not necessarily shocking. Yeah, so they're uncompensated, but are they also, uh, are investors also unaware of these risks? So the example that you gave with low volatility that it might skew to certain sectors, um, I think is relatively well understood. Um, to what degree does the unrewardedness also represent a level of ignorance on behalf of the investors? It, it can be it can be a bit of both, you know. In, in many cases, you may be aware of the sector and region bets that you're taking or the biases that you're taking, um, but you may not necessarily be fully aware of what that implies. So let me use another example. If you're a value investor today, and we've seen fairly steady growth in our value strategies uh, in the last couple of years, uh, you may source a lot of your stocks from the energy and financial sectors. Well. You know about those sector biases, perhaps, but what you may or may not be aware of is that financials have a lot of interest rate sensitivity associated with them. Uh, energy stocks tend to have a lot of commodity price risk associated with them. So you're buying value securities, cheaper securities. Do you understand or do you realize that you have a lot of macroeconomic risk, commodity price risk, interest rate risk? embedded in the sector biases of the portfolio? Uh, and a lot of times the answer is no. Uh, they you know, were, were unaware of that. Uh, they perhaps knew about the sector orientations, but uh, didn't necessarily know about the macroeconomic 
uh, effects of those sector biases, and it operates at the country level too. Yeah, so the effect of taking on these uh, unrewarded risks is not higher returns, but more benchmark-like returns. Now, with that high level, it made me also think that that's obviously a problem getting benchmark returns where you think you take active risk, but is it possible to get rid of these unrewarded risks? Uh, not completely, but it is certainly possible to reduce them in the portfolio. And I think that's the real innovation here is now we have the tools and data to really isolate each individual source of risk and manage it as best as we possibly can. Uh, in an ideal situation, what we want in a portfolio is uh, enough of the intended exposures, be it idiosyncratic or factor or otherwise, with as little of the unintended risk as we possibly can. That's the real innovation uh, of, of the next decade, I think. So yes, it is possible. You can't completely get away from it, but it's it's certainly possible to reduce. So, so what kind of ways can you use to reduce that risk? Number one is just measuring it. So uh, how much of these various types of risk do you have in your portfolio right now? Uh, what is the macroeconomic implications of that? We talked about the macro risk. Uh, what is the necessary level of these unintended risks to get the same level of desirable compensated factor exposure that you seek? Uh, oftentimes we can reduce, oftentimes we can uh, mitigate a lot of that uncompensated risk. So the first thing that, uh, that we need to do is measure it, uh, figure out what we have now, and then we can take steps to, to manage it down in the future. Yeah. I've been recently speaking with a number of asset owners here in Australia and, and basically trying to get my head around the fact of how could we uh, have dealt with the sort of March-April period um, with the pandemic coming into force and the markets reacting if you knew it in advance. And one of the answers, and this is probably more an Australian perspective, they said, well, first of all, less equities, more bonds. But then the third one was more foreign uh, currency. So I was kind of surprised when I read in the report that currency is uh, labeled as an unrewarded risk. Can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. We take a, a long-term strategic view to the, to the analysis, meaning that uh, we're looking for those risks that are, are, again, compensated over the long run. Currency exposure tends to be a net wash over the long run. Uh, over the short term, absolutely. Uh, I fully agree with your statement. Uh, but given our long-term horizon, uh, on average, it's a zero net expected return. Fair enough. Now, the report also describes something that's called the cancellation effect, where it basically looks at the different positions that different managers hold. And sometimes they have opposing views, which basically cancels out both bets. This is obviously a problem because you're, you're paying for active uh, um, bets, but you're getting uh, a neutral position. But at the same time, if you are a $100 billion asset manager, you obviously need quite a few managers in there just by the sheer uh, reason to to not run into capacity problems, but also to be well diversified. So how does that uh, balance between addressing the cancellation and in fact, and still being fully diversified work? Do you have any view on that? Absolutely. And you've, you've hit the nail on the head with, uh, with your, your analysis there. It's all about the scalability of alpha drivers. 
And you're, you're absolutely correct. The larger the portfolio, the more managers they tend to need to put to work to take up, uh, you know, the capacity to utilize capacity effectively. Uh, but the, 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 you know, it's very clear from this analysis, as well as sort of anecdotally with uh, other studies that we have done, that the more managers you add to the mix, the, the higher the tendency for this cancellation. And there's really three types of cancellation. Uh, one of them is systematic factor exposure cancellation. So you may have a, a growth manager and a value manager that are sort of taking opposite sides. Uh, you may have uh, cancellation of other systematic exposures like sectors and regions, countries. Uh, you may have a manager that's overweight, a certain country, another one that's underweight. To your, to your point, you're paying them both to take that active position, uh, but they're netting against each other. And I think the most uh, difficult to, uh, not difficult, but um, potent, if you will, uh, is the active share cancellation. So we find a lot of evidence that say manager number one is overweight a certain stock while manager number two is underweight exactly that same security. So uh, at the idiosyncratic or stock level, we have direct cancellation as well. So factor cancellation, systematic exposure cancellation, uh, idiosyncratic risk cancellation, all three of those uh, tend to increase as the number of managers increases. Now the study uh, breaks it down, I think it's five or less, uh, five to 10, uh, I think it's uh, eight to 10 or something like that, but uh, we, we stopped at 10 and that's the most important point. We do have studies or, or analyses that have dozens if not hundreds of managers uh, and the problem tends to continue as you uh, approach a large N in terms of your number of managers that active risk tends to uh, tends towards zero. Um, so therein lies the challenge and you've identified it. How do you put a lot of money to work and still generate alpha without having this cancellation effect? Uh, one of the obvious tools that we see a lot of our Australian clients utilize is systematic factor exposures as long run sources of alpha. They're highly scalable. Uh, they're not necessarily dilutive across managers like some of the other sources of active risk. Uh, so it's, it's a it's a great problem to have that you have so much money that you uh, over exhaust the capacity of your managers, but that also means that you may need to seek elsewhere uh, your your sources of active uh, active return. So is this sort of a, a rule of thumb or a, a sweet spot for, you know, the level of or the number of managers you have and, and when you're starting to run into this cancellation effect? There's no hard and fast rule. Uh, the but the answer is you need enough managers to express the views that you want to take to, to go after that compensated risk, uh, but no more in that, you know, as you start to add additional managers, the cancellation becomes problematic. Um, we want few enough to get what we want, but no more such that it tends to be dilutive for every portfolio. That's a little different. You know, it could be two or three, it could be five or six, maybe seven or eight even, um, but rarely is it more than that. And uh, yeah, again, we've seen evidence of, you know, dozens if not hundreds of managers where you definitely approach the benchmark-like performance, but you pay a non-benchmark fee. Yeah. So is that also a matter of how concentrated the portfolios of these managers are? Is it that if you have a, um, a collection of very concentrated managers that you have fewer chances of running into this or does it depend again on their style and 
and what I invest in? It's, it's a great question. And, and the answer is it depends. Um, if you are highly concentrated, it tends to mean that you tend to take very large sector region biases as well. Um, those can be offset and are likely offset in some other part of the portfolio because uh, you wanted that diversification benefit. Uh, and idiosyncratic level as well, uh, you see degradation. So um, the important point is it's not necessarily how concentrated or how diffuse a particular manager is, uh, but what remains after the managers are put together. Uh, what we don't want is to diversify our way, our compensated exposure. We want to diversify away all of our uncompensated exposure. And in a simple correlation analysis, it's very difficult to tell which of those two I'm diversifying, you know? And in the worst case scenario, I diversify away all of my compensated risk and I remain, all that remains is my uncompensated bits. Um, and that does happen. So again, it's, it's less about concentration versus diffuse and more about how you think about the collective set of managers. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about unrewarded risks, um, but you also looked at unintended style biases. And some of the styles that were described are not necessarily your usual value growth styles. Can you tell a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, we look at a variety of systematic style exposures, like high quality, high momentum, uh, lower volatility, higher dividend yield, smaller size. So outside the traditional growth versus value. <clears throat> I'd say most of the empirical research uh, still strongly supports the efficacy of these factors over time. Again, this is a longer term view here. Uh, but these in our mind are the drivers of return in all asset markets, not just equities, but also other asset markets. And these are the kinds of things that we're trying to gain exposure to uh, rather than the more shorter term uh, uncompensated risks. And now we're talking about styles. Um, you have a background in, in the quantitative uh, area and, and one of the dominating discussions at the moment, it seems that whether a value is dead or whether it's just very cheap. Do you have any views on that? Absolutely. Uh, we remain completely convicted high conviction in the value factor. Um, you know, the, the, the debate really centers around, is it a structural issue in the market or are we simply in a cycle? And we absolutely feel that we are in a cycle. It's always darkest before dawn. Uh, remember that value is not a free lunch. You earn the premia by taking the cyclicality, by withstanding the cycles. That's why you get paid to take that value risk. And when you look at it from both a macroeconomic perspective, as well as from a, a multiple, a pricing multiple perspective, I think the stage is definitely set for value to outperform in the future. Now, is that gonna be next week or next month or next year? I don't know. Um, but when you have valuation multiples, uh, you know, at two, three, four standard deviations uh, relative to its own history, and then even higher relative to growth, uh, that generally portends um, some, some positive performance of value. It, we're, it's not unlike 1999, uh, where you had a similar situation, certainly not identical. Uh, you had seven consecutive years of value underperforming, some fairly substantial underperformance at that. Uh, but then in the subsequent six years, 
uh, value outperform growth every single year. So uh, again, it's, uh, it's, it's about cyclicality. I think we're at the depths of the cycle. Yeah, I think to a degree, it's also interesting to see how the market sentiment is thinking about that. So we did recently uh, a sort of a poll, a quick poll on social media, not particularly scientific, but for a bit of fun. And we had a couple of questions in how you should approach uh, um, equity investing at the moment. And I won't go through all of it, but two that stood out, one obviously read it to fail is you should buy low and sell high. And the other one was you should buy high and sell even higher. And the majority of people to pick the latter one. So there's sort of an idea that there is actually nothing much cheap that is worth buying at the moment. Is it a mentality or is it is it a reflection of the environment? You know, I get concerned when I see the kind of multiple dislocation that we see today. Um, you know, clearly everyone wants to buy into the thing that's been moving up. So momentum has been a big trade over the last several years. And it's not necessarily about are those are the price of the technology stocks justified. Um, that, that is a concern. Uh, it, it's also very much about what is your future expectations, you know, just, you know, not just what happens today, but can they grow even further beyond today? And that's where I become concerned. If you look at the uh, cash, uh, free cash flow yield multiples of growth stocks relative to value, if the free cash flow yield, and remember, you know, kind of basic finance. Uh, when you buy a security, you buy a claim on the, the earnings or the cash flows of a company, just very simply put. Uh, and for free cash flow yields of growth stocks to catch up to value stocks, uh, free cash flow has to grow at about a 21% clip every year for the next five years. So more than double in the next five years. Now, we've, we expect that some of that growth will, will materialize. Analyst consensus expectations is around 13%. That still leaves a pretty wide gap, about an 8% gap, which is not insignificant over the next five years. Um, so while there is, you know, I think some growth, some positive growth expectations for growth stocks overall, it's really about can they actually measure up to their expectation? And that's where I become very, very concerned. Yeah, yeah. Now there's momentum and they're simply chasing returns. And when I looked at the risk report, there seems to be a little bit of an element in there as well of chasing returns when uh, selecting managers. Now, you put it a little bit politer as in the timing uh, manager allocation. But um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that's obviously a big risk as well. Sure. And this gets to essentially manager selection. Now, Typically, when you hire a manager, you hire that manager based off of some track record, usually the last three to five years, let's say. Um, but most of the research in the industry suggests that using that approach, what you'll find is that when you go to hire that manager and hold that manager, that manager tends to underperform that track record fairly significantly. Uh, there's a very high propensity of buying into managers at the peak of their return generation cycle. Um, and this is a, you know, something we have to be aware of that um, part of the problem of underperformance and unintended outcomes of portfolios is how we stage our investments uh, in our managers. So if we're buying high and 
holding until it gets low, um, that's problematic from a return perspective. And that return chasing or that timing um, behavior is very evident in our own study, but also in uh, some of the other academic studies that have been published recently. That uh, uh, if you look at the pattern of performance, the manager outperforms prior to being hired, they underperform after being hired while you hold them, you fire them, and very interestingly, they tend to outperform after that again. Uh, so it could very well be um, the bulk of the uh, investment occurs at the low point in terms of the return cycle, which is which is problematic. Yeah, it's interesting that you call that a, a cycle because I actually had a conversation with, with some asset owners here in Australia where they discussed the idea that if you identify the manager that you think is good and you want to invest in it, do you look at where they are in their return cycle to see if you can time the entry into accessing this manager? And it turned out that there's almost nobody that looks at that. Does that surprise you? It does. And I think, you know, the first step in that process is to identify if the return pattern is cyclical or not. And a lot of that depends on what is their source of alpha generation. So uh, there are risks that are highly cyclical in any asset market. Uh, sector risks being one of them. Um, so if you're not sort of cognizant of where that return is coming from, uh, you can succumb potentially to that cyclicality. So I think it is a very important consideration. Uh, that's why we need more precision in how we look at our portfolios as well as how, how we judge managers. It's not good enough to tell me that you beat the benchmark by 400 basis points every year for the last three years. I want to know where that performance came from. And I want to assess, you know, of that outperformance, which part really is cyclical? Can I expect a mean revert over time? And which is true alpha generation? And there's a big difference between those two. And yet you, you, you need to be very concerned what the distribution is across those two, two pieces. Yeah. And it also changes a lot by style, I think. So I've seen some studies where, especially when you look at sort of deep value type of strategies, is that they're Alpha is very bunched up. They can have two or three years where nothing happens and then suddenly in a couple of months, boom, they outperform. Um, and if you're just after that, then you probably want to wait a few years. Eh? Yeah, uh, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, I think we've done at Northern Trust, we've done some of the original research in the cyclicality of factor performance, um, not just deep value, but factors across the board. And again, I think this is a rationale for their existence is you get paid the factor premia because you take that cyclicality. That's a fact of life. All factors like value go through cycles. Uh, growth goes through a cycle. Quality goes through a cycle. Low ball goes through a cycle. Uh, you need to be very aware of that cyclicality when you're designing your portfolio. Uh, it's not just good enough to say, well, manager A is cyclical, so I'm going to diversify with manager B who has uh, the opposite cycle, once again, then you run into that cancellation problem potentially. So you you need to dig deeper. You need to be very precise about all the sources of risk across every manager that you have in your lineup. Yeah. So we, we, we talked about some very significant risks in, in portfolios that are still there. Um, is it a matter that people underestimate how difficult it is to blend the different managers, even when they identify the right ones? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think, again, we now have the tools and the data to do this sort of analysis readily. Um, but, you know, I, I think the, the traditional approach of 
you know, sort of gauging what you have and doing these correlation longer term return correlation studies to say, is this new manager diversifying or not? Um, just that simple approach leaves something to be desired. You know, as we pointed out, you could be diversifying because you're canceling out the compensated risk. You could be diversifying because you're canceling out the uncompensated risk. A simple correlation study doesn't tell you that. Uh, you need to dig a little deeper to understand what exactly is the source of that non-zero correlation in the portfolio. Only then can you really say that this manager is diversifying in the good way, if that makes sense. Yeah. When you look at all these risks and all the issues that are involved, I, I sort of thought, well, if you take it at a higher level, is, is this just a case where you say, well, it's all too hard. We should just all go passive for factors. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I think this is an opportunity. In fact, you know, um, I think this just simply says that we need to be very diligent about how we build our portfolios and we need to take a uh, something of a scientific view, if you will, decompose our portfolios into the uh, component risks, analyze how much of each that we have. It's not hard. Uh, it's not difficult. It's not conceptually challenging either. I think it's relatively straightforward and simple, actually. It just requires a new paradigm. And we're seeing that paradigm develop through time. And you can see this palpable shift in thinking from sort of the old methods of style box implementation, core satellite implementation, into the new, uh, more targeted factor approaches uh, which I think solve a lot of the problems that uh, we've identified in the risk report. The period that this report looks at is, is a four-year period, and it sort of ends at the end of March 2020, which is an interesting time. So obviously a lot has changed since then. We are in uh, the midst of a pandemic. Uh, there has been a lot of volatility. Now stock markets seem to have recovered on I don't know what basis. Um, <laughs> how do you think uh, the the, the basically the turmoil that we've seen after that would affect the results that you had in the report? Yeah, in many ways, I think the findings would be even more extreme in that a lot of the volatility that we have seen over the last few months uh, has accrued to the uncompensated sources. So we've had some of the highest interest sector volatility we've ever seen in equity markets. So yeah, the valuation multiples, as well as just simply the price behavior has been more extreme than we have seen in a, in a very, very long time. Um, it's very difficult to price pandemic risk uh, in any asset market, equity certainly no exception. And when a, when a risk is not properly priced, it's usually uncompensated. Uh, so pandemic risk had tended to be un, unpriced throughout the, the, the last several months. Uh, political risk going forward seems to be unpriced as well. Um, so when we see these kind of things in general, our intuitive uh, the first thought is we want to back away from these kind of risks. We want to eliminate them from our portfolio. So uh, I think more of your risk throughout the pandemic in a probably came from the uncompensated sources and an active strategy rather than less. So if we redid the study all within the last few months, same conclusions, I think they would just have more extreme values. Pandemics are sort of interesting when you look at it from a historical perspective in that when you're in the midst of it, it all seems chaos, but they are over longer terms, um, more or less short-term events, they, they referred back. But at the same time, 
they also tend to be a catalyst for change. And, and in the current pandemic, it seems that we have seen a lot of change in the way how people work. So I wrote an article earlier this week about um, the Future Fund, which is Australia's sovereign wealth fund. And they had a statement in, in part of their year in review, which said, well, we've seen how well this works. And maybe this, this whole working from home uh, um, shift, maybe we can use this to add more diversity in our staff ranks and, and more flexibility for our workers. And I think it has been said that this has accelerated a lot of technological change. What are your thoughts around that? Will we see some longer term structural changes coming out of this pandemic? Structural changes in sort of... Uh, that affect investments? In, 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 in the investment, yeah. Um, absolutely. And we already have. And I think we're just on the cusp of some... Um, very uncharted territory in terms of the volatility structure of equity markets in particular. And what I mean by that is um, you can visibly see an increased frequency and increased depth of volatility shocks that occur in equity markets and now really in all asset markets. And the frequency of these volatility spikes is accelerating pretty dramatically and has accelerated throughout the pandemic. And we can chase or trace, excuse me, uh, some of this uh, change volatility profile. It's not just the level of volatility, but uh, when markets draw down, they tend to draw down more severely, uh, more depth, but then they tend to rebound very quickly as well. This is something that uh, is unusual. In the, in the past history of equity markets, we've never really seen a pattern of returns like this. So just give me an idea. In the roughly 10 years prior to the global financial crisis. Uh, there were only five days in which the VIX index, the index of fear, went up by five points or more in one day. We'll call, we'll call that a volatility spike. There are many ways to define it, we'll call it that. Since the global financial crisis, there have been 60 of these days. Uh, so roughly the same time period, uh, but 60 volatility shocks 10 of which have occurred in 2020 alone. So just to give you a sense of the changing volatility dynamic of what's going on in the equity market, something similar is going on in other asset markets as well. Uh, obviously, coronavirus plays something of a role. Rising recession probabilities play something of a role. Uh, but also, we're very concerned about Central banks around the world have the zero to negative interest rate policy. And what is that impact on leverage? The more leverage you have in an economy, uh, the more severe your equity market drawdowns tends to be because you have more leverage behind that particular market. We're seeing some evidence of that. Uh, I am also, as an algorithmic trader in my past, I'm very concerned about uh, the amount of algorithmic trading and market making that is occurring because a lot of these um, implementations have basically automatic off switches when liquidity problems hit. So whether you uh, like it or not, uh, algos generate a lot of liquidity in most asset markets around the world. And if there's a problem, they tend to cut off that liquidity, which means uh, prices go down even further in a drawdown, tends to exacerbate the problem. Uh, this, I think, to an extent, is also causing more of these volatility spikes. So why is this a concern? Well, uh, it's a concern because, at least in equities, um, most portfolios, equities, let's say, is like 60% of the notional allocation, but it's 80 to 90% of the total risk 
of the asset allocation and very typically 100% of the tail risk. So when you have these large drawdowns uh, that are happening with greater depth and greater frequency, you have much more tail risk that you have to be concerned about. So I think the future of asset allocation when it comes to equities is much more about how do you control that tail risk because of these rise in these volatility spikes or these volatility events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So this was uh, uh, an edition that you chose to publish. I think you said uh, there's been uh, reports like this internally might before. Will we see future editions of uh, the risk report? Absolutely. I think this is uh, just a start. Um, we plan to obviously maintain and add to it in the equity format, uh, but very likely in the future, I, I would forecast that we'll see a fixed income uh, edition, uh, as well as potentially an ESG edition as well. As we collect data from uh, our prospects and clients, typically we get all of that. So we can do that kind of assessment. So we're starting here, um, but I would certainly expect to see more in the future. Very nice. Very nice. Well, thank you very much, Michael. This was very interesting. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.